Welcome to the new HR Futures podcast. Uh, I'm Kevin Green. Uh, this is brought to you by Expedite and Circa. With me today is Quinton Heath, who is the HR Director of AB Sugar, part of the ABF Group. Hi, Quinton. That's right. Um, great to have you here today. Uh, Thank why you. don't you tell us a bit about your organisation um, and a bit about so the size of it, what it does. I mean, I, I think you know it sort of says a little bit about it in, in terms of the name and also a bit about what you're responsible for. Sure. So um, AB Sugar is the sugar division within ABF. ABF is a FTSE 50 company in the UK uh, with nine divisions, eight of them are in food. And the ninth is Primark, the retail business. So it's quite a varied business uh, within it. Uh, the sugar division itself operates in uh, 10 countries, in Europe, Africa, and China. Um, has a turnover of 1.6 billion. Okay. So quite large numbers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, how, and in terms of your role, how many people in the business? Um, in, the, in the sugar division, there's uh, 34,000, of which 30,000 of them work in Africa. Okay, so it's quite large. Okay, so are you the number one sugar business in the UK? Number one in the UK, we're in the top three in the world. Okay. It's a very fragmented market, sugar. So the, the largest businesses only have a 2 or 3% market share in world terms. Oh, crap. I didn't realise yeah. it was that So it's very fragmented, yeah. yeah. Okay, um, let's start right at the beginning of your career. How did you get into HR? Was it a conscious choice? Was it something you sort of fell into or you found by accident? No, it was, it was a conscious choice. I was a commercial general manager in universities and um, I wanted to fight to learn a skill that would allow me to move between the sectors. So I looked at a number of different ideas. Um, one of them was to become an accountant and finance because uh, mm. I can add up. Um, and uh, I decided to, in the end, I plumped for working in HR. So, and what did you do your first degree in? So was that economics. So my first degree was in, econo- uh, was in economics in Manchester. And then what did you do to help you move from the sort of general management at the university? Did you go off and study HR or did you get your first gig? Or? Yeah, I got my first gig. So I moved from a, co- a purely commercial general management role uh, to a larger organisation in the university sector where I took on responsibility for HR. And then I went and studied a master's in HR at Aston yeah. University. And when you sort of were thinking about HR, what was it that attracted you then? I haven't got a clue. Um, so you can take that out, can't no, you? No, that's all right, yeah. Um, um, I think what attracted me was the idea of uh, driving change, making okay. change happen within organisations and to make the organisation overall more effective. That was the thing that really uh, attracted me to it. Yeah. And in terms of uh, the first role, any particular highlights, things that you really enjoyed in in the sort of... I mean, as you go in and those sort of organisations, you're sort of a bit of a generalist, aren't you? So you do a bit of everything. Yeah, I did do a bit of everything. And certainly in my first job doing the Masters at the same time, I was really one page ahead of everybody else. You know, I was turning, turning up at a course uh, one week and then I'd be applying it the next. So it was, it was very good learning. I, the highlight, undoubtedly, was the introduction of students into the organisation. So we went from employing about... Uh, just under 100 student staff within uh, the university uh, to over 550 by the time I left. So all the growth that we had in the commercial environment um, on campus, instead of employing more 
full-time employees, we employed more student employees. So the idea behind that was it was services for students by students. Which you, you, there's some logic there, but presumably challenge in terms of getting students to focus on their part-time job and something that perhaps they're not interested in, they're just keen to get some money. Yeah, I mean, the whole, the, but the whole environment that we were working in was student-focused. So every, all the members of staff understood, you know, or, you, yeah, understood that they were working on a campus. So they were enjoying working with people who were 18 to 22, 23 uh, at the time. It was great development, um, really great development for the students that were involved. So not only did they earn money, but they um, had real jobs. And some, some of them ended up being supervisors and having real responsibilities. Some of them ended up being um, key holders to the building. Um, as a result, so it was very good. We took a lot of the ideas um, from the US. So we were in contact with US universities about the way that they worked with students on campus um, and worked closely with particularly New England universities. Okay, so how long was you doing that role, the sort of HR role, before you then went off to to Alpha? Um, I did that for four years. Then I went over to the United States, so the contacts that I made in the US. Yeah, you spent did a placement there, didn't you? Yeah, well, it was longer, actually. It was 18 months. It was a job on an American campus. Um, then I came back and did another commercial. And what was that about? Go back, go back to that. So yeah. Was that just about experience? Or yeah, was it was. That, yeah. For me, it was just about learning to live in another country. Uh, and it did that. It was a fantastic experience, learning about how... So the thing I took out of the United States was the things that I took for granted in my 20s, things that I just took for granted about the way we did things in the UK, may seem logical to me, but they weren't the only way of doing it. There were multiple ways of doing the same thing. Okay, so give us an example. Oh, the best and easy example is, in the UK at the time, cars used to be taxed, but cars used to be taxed by a tax disc in the windscreen of the car. And the uh, number plate of the car belonged to the car. In the US, the tax disc and the number plate were the same thing. And the tax and the number plate belonged to the driver, okay. not or to the owner of the car, God. not to the car. Right. So when you sold the car, you unscrewed the number plate. Okay. So it was just a completely different way of buying, of having to do the transaction of buying and selling cars. And it took me a long, not a long time, but it took me a time to understand what was going on. But the thing was really two perfectly good systems. Yeah. Just very different. different. And, you, and I learned at that early age that there were numbers of different and ways. And what did you something. take out from sort of a people management or HR perspective? What did the Americans do different from us? Did they do things better or worse? I mean, they've got a slightly different view of HR, I think. Yeah, it was an operational role. So actually, oh, okay. I, wasn't, I, wasn't, I wasn't in HR. But um, the environment that I was in there was far more policy-led and uh, organised in the sense of there was a policy for everything. Um, than in the UK. Okay. So, Far more seniority-led, the companies yeah, I worked in. Yeah, okay. So um, you come back, and then how do you end up in Alpha? What do you do? Is that, do you just apply for something? Or Yeah, I was, um, on my 30th birthday, I was unemployed. I right. uh, didn't have a job. I um, uh, had two children, and I needed to find work. So I got a book out called um, What Colours Your Parachute? Oh, God. Yeah, going back in time. And, um, you know, you learn that you have to put energy into the job search. And the more energy you put in, the more that you get out. And it was really hard because most private sector employers looked at me as, you know, you've only worked in the public sector. Yeah. 
Um, so, so go on. So how did you how did you convince these guys to take a take a risk on you? What was it that you did or said or how did you influence them? It was industrial relations. It was uh, I found somebody. I found a business that had an IR agenda, and I'd worked with unions inside the public sector, and that was the transferable skill okay. that attracted them. So tell us a bit about. And of course, my you know personality, great personality. Yeah. So tell us a bit about what you did at Alpha. Uh, so Alpha was a um, low-cost uh, flight caterer, um, lowest cost in the industry, good margins by the industry standards at the time. Um, and the, the core thing was working with the operations team to take the costs even lower within the business and to do it in imaginative and constructive ways. That was the core agenda over six years. To do that... Um, had to build up the HR function, which was a very transactional function, to get it to step, uh, to have it give it the ability to step back and to look at everything that we were doing. And give us an example of what you did, you know, in terms of taking cost out and making the business more efficient. You know, because I'd imagine airline catering was pretty efficient anyhow. So, um, because it's so competitive from a price point of view, yeah. I thought that. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of natural efficiencies or efficiencies that have been developed over time. So what did you, from a people perspective, sort of do? Um, one thing was that we were very clear about giving responsibility to the general managers on site for profit. So that for their costs and their profit. So rather than telling them uh, what to do, we uh, the conversations that me and the operations director were having with them was far more about, well, you want to get to the best profit and the lowest cost. So what could you do differently inside your organisation? So we had a change process and we brought in some consultants, but we found that that actually with some of the tools the consultants gave us, with our knowledge of the industry, we were better, we were able to move far better, far mm-hmm. quicker. So we started having those conversations. So one of the classics was around night shift. Um, you know, the centre had been asking the individual uh, units to remove night shift for years. Um, and actually this thing about the conversations, which was do what you want, but reduce the cost and, and optimise your profit, um, led the general managers to be looking for cost reductions. And they worked out the thing that we'd worked out from the centre for themselves, which was that night shift wasn't, was not the most optimal way of delivering. Mm. But it was a different conversation. Instead of us going in and saying, take it out, it was leading them through a guided journey to get to the most efficient, effective way of doing it. Yeah, so there's most certainly going to be a, a theme about change throughout your career and the things oh, that you've done. There is. There is. But that was one of the first early ones then, which was, let's not do, you know, top-down, leader knows best, organisation knows best. It was more emergent. We got people involved. We had different conversations and they worked out for themselves what was the right w- thing to do. With an end goal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. With a, within a frame. That's absolutely yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. So, you then uh, spent, was it four years there, or uh, uh, Alpha? I think it's four, isn't it? Yeah, six years, sorry. Six years. Six years there. And then you moved you on... You have been wondering for a moment. <laughs> then you moved on to um, where you've been since, but you've done a range of different roles, haven't you? So you did Silver Spoon to start with, then you did the Twinings, then you did Grocery, Nat, and then ABF Sugar. So... Tell us about a bit about your career in those different organisations, because I think this food's been at the centre of all of that. Yeah, it, it, as I look back now over my career, foods, I've always worked in food. Even when I first left university, I worked at um, Marks and Spencer, and I ended up doing 
six months in the uh, yeah. food hall. So uh, food food has, has been the thing. There's been a lot of similarities. You, you're able, as, you move, as I've moved through the career, I've been able to take an HR toolkit that I've been developing and to use that in, in pursuit of the business objectives. So you start with the business objective and you apply the toolkit as it is. The businesses, though, have been quite different and they've had quite different rhythms based on the customer base um, that, that they work with. Mm. So I worked at Twinings and the energy in Twinings is in the, predominantly in the sales and marketing function, which leads to one form of conversations taking place mm-hmm. in the organisation. And um, in Sugar, um, the conversations now are both with farmers at one end and uh, customers at, at the other. And that leads to a different rhythm of the organisation. So the organisations are different, yeah. but the, you're able to... But the, the idea of taking a business problem and then taking the HR toolkit and applying it is similar. So tell me, what do you mean by rhythm? I think I, think I know what you mean, but... Well, this, the, the way things... Do you mean focus or area of... Um, the, I mean, the speed at which the organisation works, the things that the organisation talks about, where the decisions are made, what's the principal function. That's what I mean by rhythm. Okay. Um, so tell us a bit about, you know, during your career, you look back now and think, what are the things that you're proudest of? What are the things where you go, well, actually, I, there was a, you know, insurmountable problem, a huge challenge for the organisation, and, you know, I made an impact, you know, me and my function, the HR function, did something remarkable. Yeah, I, I think the thing I'm overall proud of in my, in my career is this idea of working with the managers, line managers and business owners who have got individual questions that they want to solve. And my job has been to work out um, with the t- HR teams that I work with What's the response that's going to get them quickest to where they where they want to be, no matter how counterintuitive that might be, um, and to work that uh, you know is it an individual talent problem or is it a team problem or is it a larger organisational problem? So that idea, you know, when I was at Alpha, we we're talking earlier about Alpha. The big challenges in Alpha um, at Heathrow were around industrial relations. And the question was, how do you deconstruct the way that we were thinking about the employee relationship and the industri- and the trade unions going to ACAS every year? How do you break out of that cycle? And it and it wasn't being harder, and it wasn't paying, you know, it wasn't being tougher, money, yeah. and it wasn't about paying more money. It was about the HR team stepping back and thinking about. What is it that the employees want? What is it that the union want? And how can we satisfy those needs and deliver the lower cost base and the flexibility that the business needed? And you've talked a bit about, you know, developing... So I should say, by the way, at Heathrow, in an environment in which other airline caterers were going on strike. I remember it well. So, So the HR team there did a fantastic job of keeping the rapport going with the unions whilst getting us to the end goal. And presumably doing stuff about making sure that we had great relationships with frontline staff, with yeah. managers, which yeah, is managers. often forgotten. For, well, and in the IR relationship, actually, yeah, yeah, what yeah. we did was we dialed up the role of frontline managers and supervisors in working directly with their employees. That was one of the big parts of the strategy, was to say we talk to the union and we talk to our employees at the same time. 
So that's a good example. You've got another one that you, you, you think, well, actually, we did a remarkable job there in terms of whether it's ABF or Twinings or... Well, and then the challenge at Twinings was changing the business from um, what was at the time a predominantly UK-focused uh, tea business. And that's how it thought of itself. And uh, introducing, really, for the first time, uh, a marketing function. And then talking about individual performance um, and uh, employee engagement. I mean, the, the, the solution at Twinings was one that was more about individual and team contribution. And therefore, a lot of my work there was about how do you find HR um, approaches and interventions that are going to enhance individual performance. So for us, then, that was... Uh, performance management, it was employee engagement, it was recruiting talent, it was developing talent. That was the solution. And what difference did that make? You know, you put those things in, you get the managers to do it. What impact does it make on oh, the growth, performance? The growth at Twinings has been, uh, has been remarkable um, over, over the years. The, the, the business growth, yeah. uh, the profit growth has been, uh, has been fantastic. So we've talked a bit about things that have gone well. I think one of the great things about you know reflecting, learning, developing is to be honest, we learn as much when things don't go quite so well. When you know something we think was going to work doesn't work, people respond in a slightly different way because we're dealing with human beings and not machinery. So yeah, yeah. tell us about things that you know in your career where you go, oh, I learned a lot from that. That was a an interesting experience not one I particularly would go out and seek again but I learned a lot from it well I think um, all of the things that have gone well have been at the end of a process of making multiple mistakes at the beginning of it so I've talked eloquently about the IO agenda at um, Alpha but there were a number of mishaps along the way where we had to learn about that process of and that's not taught is it so when you learn in HR, you go off and study it, or um, even as, I don't know, coaches or mentors, you know, there's this sort of belief that we've got this sort of toolkit and it'll always work. But in reality, quite often it's trial and error, isn't it? What will work in this context with this set of managers to deliver that outcome might not work tomorrow with a different set of managers in a slightly different context. Yeah, I think of that as sundial management. Yeah, I don't know if it's true. It might be an apocryphal story. But um, the story is that when the Romans were landed in Greece, they found these wonderful sundials that worked. So they picked them up and moved them to Rome, plonked them down, and wondered why they didn't tell the time. Because what they didn't understand, so the story goes, is about the calibration of sundials. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really important. So one of the key things I hear a lot in HR about is about universal best practice. And my experience is there's no such thing as universal best practice. There's only things that work within the context of the people that you work with. And you have to do trial and error. So even if you've got a good idea, you have to bring it in. You know, I'm a big pilot of ideas. Do it small first. Try it out. Prove of the concept. Um, and then grow it from there. Um, one of the other things, that I suppose, we've talked a bit about your career and stuff. And and, and clearly, um, you sort of studied for your HR qualification quite early in your career, like most of us do. But I think mm. one of the things that differentiates you, Quinton, is you, you know, I don't know, towards the sort of latter part of your career, you, you've gone off and uh, studied for a doctorate in business administration, which is like equivalent to a PhD. 
and you did that in change and transformation. I suppose we'll talk a bit about the outcome of that, but why in the first place? What was it that, you know, you've got a big job, they're pretty busy jobs. Why do you go, and, and how long did it take, about eight years? It was eight years calendar time, yeah, seven yeah. years academic time, yeah. So, you know, it was a big commitment. You know, you've already it got was. a big job. It was. You're doing a lot. So what was it that, that got you? You know, what was it in your psyche that thought, I want to go off and dig deep into this area? Um, I think I had a, a career choice around that time, um, which was, did I see myself as going into other functions like general management other than, than HR and moving on? Or did I... Um, want to go deeper on my HR toolkit. Um, and in a conversation with my boss, I had a really good boss at the time, uh, you know, the, the debate led to go deeper on your HR toolkit. And then when I started exploring that, um, having already done a master's or having already qualified, as you said, early in my career, you know, I took the view that um, another short course on change uh, or reading another person's book wasn't going to give me that step up. So I started looking around for what would, and that journey led me to looking at a, a doctorate. Yeah. Um, and why in change? What, what, what was that? The, was, so, yeah, know, so, so when you were looking around, were you yeah. looking for a range of different sort of long-term substantive learning experiences in HR or broader stuff? Or was you already quite clear that change was the area that you wanted to focus on? I was quite clear that it was going to be around change and that it was either going to be around programmatic change or more transformative change um, when, I, when I started the work. And, it, and um, what really then excited me as I got to thinking about it more and more was why do big, stable businesses which have great management teams fail? What is it that leads to the Nokias of this world and the Kodaks of this world? you know why are they in the form that they were here why are they no longer with us mm. and um tell us a bit about the structure of the learning for the for the doctorate so mm. you know uh, this is sort of self-directed learning isn't it predominantly yeah very much so so to tell us about how you know how you went about it and i suppose the bits you liked about it and the bits you didn't um so the the structure of the program is that you start off by, um, in my case, doing some taught modules. So the first year or so was a series of taught modules on how to research and the philosophy of research, how to do quant, how to do qualitative um, methods, um, and then how to get your research published. That was you know, that, that was a year long, a year long program that was very structured. Then you start the process of, of going away and doing it on your own. And that was quite an immersion for me and quite, quite a difficult process of going away and collecting my thoughts. I, I met um, a professor at London Business School in the middle of this. And um, he asked me what, what year I was in. And I said, uh, year six. And he said, uh, have you got your question yet? And, and I think that's, that's about right. You know, it's, it's a real journey of trying to work out what are you studying What's the question you're trying to answer in a, in a deep sense? I suppose I knew it was about change, but uh, and working that through. And for me, the literature that I was reading evolved as 
the interviews that I did, as I did those, I was changing the literature I was reading, which then changed my interpretation of the interviews, which then changed the literature that I was reading. So for me, it was a very iterative process of going backwards and mm. forwards, which is incredibly time consuming. I did that normal thing that people do with the mine was nearly all qualitative. And I got completely lost in the qualitative interviews. It was, uh, you know, at times a very um, depressing, lonely task. And what kept you going? Well, the, the time that was the worst was around this six-year point, And you realise that you've put six years in. So now, now, you, now you, should, uh, you, you should push it through to the end. And look, I had great support at home. Mm. Um, it definitely was great um, working, working with me to support me going through it. So, um, you know, those things saw me through to the end. And how did you balance that with a day job? I mean, because that's quite tough when you're trying to do something which is intellectually quite challenging yes. and time-consuming. Yes. And do the jobs that we, you know... That we do, yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that, that's absolutely right. So the bulk of my doctorate was done on Sundays. Right, okay. So you give up quite a lot of yeah. your, your time um, on Sundays. And then I started giving up um, family holidays. So in the last couple of years, um, my holidays were... Um, most of my holidays were based in the attic at home because you needed you need to write writing time and although you, uh, in my case I could find that found I could only write for so hours a day being able to walk back in the next day and pick off pick up where I'd left off was really important so I got more done in a seven day stint of a week's holiday or nine day stint of a week's holiday than I would have done in nine weeks of Sundays, so that's very true. And then I was given good facility time by my work, and they gave me some weeks off, especially in the final year. Um, I could, I thought, I think they saw that I needed to get to the end of this of, of this <laughs> journey. Um, so it was quite, it was quite intense at the end, and quite grateful when I fell over the line. And of course, my supervisor, you know. We fell out about the intensity at which he wanted me or the clarity with which he wanted me to write. That was a very difficult journey, fighting over almost every word at times in paragraphs and sentences. But the end product benefited from that level okay. of dedication. So this is going to be a, this is a short question. Right. Um, but conclusions from that research, what would you say to our listeners about your big finding? In relation to change management. So if you can yeah, synthesize yeah, yeah, it. Yeah. Oh, well, I can try. Um, so mine was on changing of culture. So I took the decision that if I wanted to understand how organisations were fundamentally altering in response to market demands, then um, one way of doing that was to look at the culture of the organisation. So I looked at culture and how it got changed. And the, the, real, the fundamental finding is that when people are at work... About 70% of what they do is habitual. So you're into how do you change habits? And you change habits by, making pe- by getting people to practice the new way of working. So a lot of the work that is done around change is around communicating with people and big town halls and newsletters and things like that. And I was saying, that is really, I found that that was really important but equally as important was getting people to practice what you wanted them to do. And that takes another whole set of interventions to get people to change the way that they mm. work on a day-to-day basis. 
how have you applied this? So now you've got this conceptual stuff. You know, clearly you're managing, working in an organisation as an HR dictator that's going through some kind of... Yeah, yeah. Because we, we always are, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So how, how have you sort of applied that? What have you... Have you tried and turned that quite deep-thinking, theoretical, yes. conceptual stuff yes. into something that you can apply in a workplace? Yeah, it's um, it's, it's 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 very practical. In the um, so the research was was based on the sugar industry. That's where I um, undertook my research. So on a day-to-day basis at work, it's relatively easy, or not relatively easy, but you know, easier than for many to take the learnings and put and put them into place. And the and and the the real conversation on a daily weekly basis is about how are these organizations the wording i use is how how is the organization plumbed what is the flow of information and decision making and the rhythm that runs through the business around meetings and what's on the agenda of meetings because what i found in the research was if you can change those things you change the conversation that people are having and you change what they do Okay, Um, we're going to take a short break now and we'll be back in the second half of this podcast to talk to Quinton Heath from uh, AB Sugar where we'll talk a bit about the HR profession and what it needs to do differently, uh, uh, if it it does. And we'll also talk a bit about, uh, I don't know, technological change and some of the stuff that's coming down the hill. So rejoin us in a couple of minutes. Are you looking to reduce risks and operating costs? Or increase your agility and capacity? There's more pressure than ever for HR and finance to provide strategic value for the business and for CEOs. At Zealous, our expert team creates software and managed services that handle your entire payroll and HR admin processes. We believe there are two sides to the employee experience. The fundamentals that need to go unnoticed and experiences that employees really care about. And we can help you master both. We're here to make the complex simple, freeing you up to focus on your people and achieve your goals. Find out more at zealous.com. Welcome back to the second part of this HR Futures podcast with uh, me, Kevin Green. Uh, with me today is uh, Quinton Heath, who is the HRD at uh, AB uh, Sugar which is part of the ABF group. And in the first half, we were talking quite a lot about uh, Quinton's career, uh, his doctorate uh, in uh, change management. And now we're going to talk a little bit more perhaps about uh, our profession and our career and what we need to be doing differently. So before we sort of move off of the change stuff, uh, Quinton, tell us a bit about what you think HR's role within that is. You know, should we be leading change programs? Are we the experts in culture change, people change, because if we are, then I suspect leading on to one of my later questions, there's an area for development for the profession. So first of all, I suppose your view on HR's role in leading and facilitating managing change. I think the business needs to have change capability and I'm a bit agnostic as to where it sits inside the organisation, but um, the thing I would say to managing directors, chief executives, is make sure you you have a function somewhere that is capable of leading change, transformation through the organisation. So in um, uh, in sugar, in a number of the businesses, we've um, appointed business transformation directors, which are closer to heads of strategy 
than they are to HR. But the OD work, the, the organisation and development work that, that backs up those transformation directors, sits within the HR function. So some of the change sits outside of HR, but the OD and the uh, so the organisational design development and then the implementation of change sits within HR. Um, what, and does that work well, that model? Yeah, well, it's, it's working well for us at the moment, um, I've got to say. The, the thing that I've found... Following my doctorate, I've gone out and, and done a number of talks at breakfasts and at seminars. And one of the interesting things that I found is that although practice-based change is very rarely written about in management books, it's, it is the way that HR directors lead change. So when you get and have the conversations with them about what are you doing in leading change, there's a lot more of the practice of practice-based change going on than uh, articles in the Harvard Business Review or any of the magazines would lead you to believe. Those magazines and books are still very much on the programmatic, cotter-based change model. I mean, that's where they they, they still come out of. Um, And that's the thing that leads to 70% of change initiatives not being seen to be successful. When the research that's been done around HR directors and what they're doing, the conversations I've had are that they intuitively know that they've got to move towards looking at the practice of day-to-day work. What are people discussing in meetings? Well, I mean, there's always a debate about, you know, programmatic change, the emergent changes yeah, yeah. there and stuff. Yeah, yeah. But what you're saying is, is slightly different, isn't it? You're This thing about the habitual patterns of work are the fundamental causes, or not the causes, but the things that you need to change in itself. Yes. So it isn't around how people think or feel within a change environment or stuff. It is about the activity that they do on a daily basis. Yeah, and and the and what I found was that the two go together. If you change what people do on a day-to-day basis or people change what they do on a day-to-day basis, it changes the way they think. And at the same time, you need some an intervention that allows them to talk about what they're thinking. So thinking and feeling on the one hand and practice-based change on the other. They go hand in hand. You, the, the challenge I have is that many change initiatives often focus more on the thinking and the feeling than they do on the practice. What I'm saying is you need to have a balance of both. Yeah. What I found was yeah, in practice yeah. you need to have a balance of both. Yeah, okay. Um, and I think the HR function is really well-placed to play on both of those, uh, to both those hands and does more of it and is better at it than it, we often lead ourselves to believe okay so let's talk a bit about it so you know i think we beat ourselves up and i'm i i get frustrated with the profession quite a lot as well right so i spent a lot of time saying we could be so much better i could just see loads of that's opportunity true. and frustrated about how we don't grasp it now give us your view on where you think uh the hr profession is you know its strengths its weaknesses and what it needs to do if it's going to add more value and be more successful in the future I, I think the challenge for the HR function is that it has a it has a tendency to focus on individuals and individual solutions for individuals. You know, I, I um, was never a great fan of the war for talent because I think the question on the war for talent, as in talented individuals, is always how do they work in the new organisation that they go to. So I've always become far more interested in how the organisation works and how people work within the organisation than I am in buying, you know, the star striker and importing them in. And I think too many of the HR conversations are around 
who's going to do that job and who's the best person to do why rather than actually how do we make people successful by giving them the support around them and the ways of working around them that will deliver what we need and you have to do both but I think what HR focuses on a lot is on individuals rather than on teams and organisations one of my takes is and I spend a lot of time talking about this is HR focuses on individuals so we agree on that and the organisation and at the organisational level, it's about policy and overview and structure and shape yeah. and all of that. And then individuals is about performance. Yeah. And the bit that's missed in the middle is actually how do people work collectively, yes. collaboratively to deliver results? Because most work's done in teams, isn't it? In some shape or form. Yeah, in some form of group, yeah. And that's the bit that... But if yeah. you look at... You know, look at our HR's tool and the textbook still talk about individuals and culture and organisational stuff. But without the bit in the middle that is the bit which is, what do people do? You know, I process payments, I answer the phone, I deal with customers, you know. Yeah, I, I, I think that's absolutely right. So, And even the stuff that's about organisation is often little more than we write a policy, rather than finding out how the organisation is actually lived or the company is actually lived by people inside the organisation. So you need to understand what's the experience of people, what really occurs on the ground, mm. and then work it out to, so how does the organisation create the environment in which these things can, can be done better? So I, I don't think that we often talk about the practice of the way the organisation is but we do a lot of work around values and vision, um, values, vision, policy on the one hand, and individuals on the other, and it is the bit in the middle. Yeah. So what does HR need to do differently? How do we change it? Oh, I think there's a great thing about learning the sophistication of how actually strategy turns into action, how change actually occurs, um, and how the organisation is plumbed, and what would you need to change in the plumbing of the organisation in order to get things to be different on the ground. So an example that came out of the work that I did was uh, budgeting. You know, very few people, very few articles I've read talk about change your budgets in order to drive better performance. But once you've set a budget within an organisation, people go back to that as a sign of success. So be very clear about what you're asking people to deliver through the budgeting cycle. Yeah. Um, and then when they reforecast or they and even if you don't have a budget the question is what are the uh, key performance indicators that you are using to drive behaviour people do care at some level about what those are and so just make sure that those things are linked to your strategy and I, I'm not sure many organisations go back or in the research I did not many organisations go back and say I've changed the strategy therefore I'm changing the budgeting process no they change something but it's often not the budgeting process Yes. And yet those financials drive a lot of the work and the conversations that we have. So what I'm into is changing the conversations and what people are doing in practice inside the organisation. All right. Um, Which, of course, would take HR adding up and uh, dealing with finances. Yeah. And we'd we'd somehow, we'd most probably say, well, that's not our role, is it? We've got to change the budgeting process. Isn't that something that finance should be leading? But often, anyhow. So, yeah, but our job is to go and have the conversation with finance. How does your, and, and anybody in the organisation, how does your budgeting process, or the budgeting process, uh, deliver the strategy that we've all agreed? Okay, so let's move on a bit. So young person comes to see you, perhaps a second jobber. I'm thinking about a career. They're outside of HR at the moment. I'm thinking about a career mm, in HR. Okay. What would you say to them? Good, the great things about HR, the things you need to be aware of, the challenges. The great thing is the variety of the work and the access throughout the organisation. 
Um, so when I have had those conversations with people, it's about if you enjoy being able to operate across the organisation and find different ways of adding and creating value, then it's a great place to be. Um, if you want to take, pers- in my world, if you want to take personal responsibility for doing something specifically, then it's not the great place to be because our jobs are to help other people or support other people in delivering their objectives. If you want to be the person actually setting the objectives and delivering them within the business context, I, I think it's a less good place to be for you. Tell me a bit about careers, because one of the things I suppose I get interviewed quite often about why do HR directors not become chief execs? You know, and I'm yeah. a limited sample. You know, why do they keep coming back to this point that run a trade association? Because there's that few number of examples. Uh, and I talk about well, I think HR should be leaders. But again, the more I say that, the more actually I think the profession is not quite sure, partly because our role often isn't to be the leader and the ultimate decision maker. It is an influencer, a developer, someone that helps. But I can't, you know, I think actually the skills and the knowledge that's been learned up in a um, career with HR means that you have got an amazing array of skills. And why can't people be leaders later in their careers coming out of HR? Yeah, of course they can. I think that HR is a very good source for future... I mean, when we say leaders in this context, we mean chief executives and managing directors. So I think it's a very good source. It's at least as good a source as finance. Why do, why do, why do, why do they not end up in those chairs? Um, I don't know. No. no, 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 no. I don't know either. I think some of it's about perception. If you've had a career in HR, you've got no track record of actually delivering, having that ultimate accountability. So it's a bit of a risk for organisations. Yes, yes. It's an organisational question. And then secondly, I think there's a lot of HR people to go, oh, I don't think I really want it. I like being an influencer. I like being engaged in the conversations, but perhaps I don't want the ultimate accountability to see, you know, do you expect an MD succeed or fail? I I think that's right. And I think the the other thing is, you know, success is not just about becoming the managing director. So for many HR people, having a role as a conciliary uh, is is the success and that's what they would like. And therefore the next step is to go and do that role in a larger organisation. and, um, you know, every organisation needs a Tom Hogan, if I've got his name right. <laughs> um, okay. Um, there's a lot of talk, isn't there, at the moment about robots, algorithms, machine learning, AI, artificial intelligence. And I suppose um, clearly there will be some change from a, uh, through automation, through businesses applying this, these new technologies you know, what should the HR function be doing in relation to this? How does it get ahead of this change? How does it, you know, prepare itself and its organisation for what might be incredibly disruptive? I, I think the the change is the, the change that we're going through at the moment is going to be disruptive, and I think that one of the ways in which it will become disruptive is that. Um, jobs will be augmented rather than autom- automated so that the whole job won't become automated it mm. will be sections of the job that will become augmented with technology so it's responding to the environment in which um, a large number of the people in the organisation have got sections of their jobs that have become automated so that 
that person will become more effective over time and that some of the work they've been doing will be, will become automated through apps you know so on a daily basis now when I'm running or cycling mm. um, you know there's an automation going on which is I'm reading the data directly from my app about my performance mm. whereas previously I would have had to sit down with a spreadsheet and work it out I no longer I no longer have to do that and I think therefore the the, the role of a, the role of HR in it is one is getting the organization to drive that augmentation pro- process and then the design of work. So I don't think it's just a function for the technology IT departments to work about what should augmentation look like or what should automation look like. Um, there's a real debate to be had about the areas in which we can see it being really beneficial. And then I think there's a huge design piece of work or individual working with individuals to work out how they're going to adopt the the technology and you know working through the natural worries that come you know if if a chunk of my job goes what what will happen yeah so far i so far in our industry i haven't seen anything that has been um that has greatly reduced the number of people i've only seen uh examples where people have benefited from the automation I mean, driving, I suppose, is an area of your activity, isn't it? There must be people driving stuff about all over the place. So self-driving cars or vehicles will have a significant impact for people that do those jobs at the moment. Yeah, and, 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 way, and factories. I mean, the, the automation of control systems within factories and the ability to um, have more centralised control systems, which are more responsive to the data that's been put into them so that you... Um, you're le- you're less balancing the factory yourself as a person. The system is balancing itself. Mm. That's where interesting times. Um, so let's start to sort of move towards the end of the, the sort of conversation and and talk a little bit about you know Quinton the man. You know what do you do outside of work? I mean we've mentioned in passing exercise. Yes. Um, We've also mentioned studying. That's been a big part of your yes, life for the last few years. So tell us a bit about, you know, the things that you do outside of work, what your passions are. Oh, my main passion outside of work is uh, is keeping fit. A few years ago, about three years ago, I went on a park run, uh, the five-kilometre runs, and um, realised I wasn't as fit as I thought I was. Uh, that was a big wake-up call uh, for me. So I enjoyed getting into park runs. And then once you're running five kilometres successfully, the question is, do you want to go faster? And that's what I did first. Yeah. And then the question becomes, do you want to go longer? So then I started running 10 kilometres. And then a friend suggested, this has all been through a friend's suggestion, I'm very suggestible. Um, a friend said, well, I've always wanted to do a short triathlon. So for the last two years, two, three years, I've been doing short course triathlons. Um, as well, so I've had to learn to swim. I couldn't swim properly before this really? started. Yeah, really. You could swim, but you couldn't swim properly. I could do I could do breaststroke. I couldn't do front crawl. And through the great people at Coventry Triathletes, they've taught me to do front crawl. Still not a great swimmer. Still working hard at it. But learning a new skill at fifty five is hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, a new intuitive skill. So uh, yeah, I, uh, on a weekly basis, I swim and cycle and run. And you also talked a little earlier just about sort of growth, um, about development. You know, I know that's important to you. So, do you want to say a little bit about how you've you know developed as a as a human being? And cause yeah. I know you, you talk about that you know a bit, and I think it's it's you know quite useful because I think people that are 
aspiring to big jobs and things, I think it's important that, that perhaps you know we share some of that stuff. Yeah, I think change, leaving change in an organisation is it can personally be tough. You know, we see people at their best in change processes, and we see their darker side as well. And as a change agent, you know, change starts from you being knowing yourself and being sure about yourself. So, you know, I've had to do quite a lot of work around my own personal resilience, about um, about being there for other people in the change process rather than worrying about my own reaction to, to, to what is going on. And, um, and family bereavements have been a big learning point for me. You know, when my mother-in-law died, um, I really wasn't ready for that, but I learned some tools and techniques about how to be resilient through the process, you know, through the time of, of her dying. Um, I learned to write a journal, I learned to meditate, I learned to run and to be physically active. And those three things are my cornerstones when I'm under, find myself under pressure. And that meant through my own mother's death. Um, and then last year in 2019, my sister died of breast cancer. And the way in which I was able to be personally there for her in the last few months, uh, rather than worrying about my own feelings, was through being this pro, you know, this way of being resilient, of meditating, of writing a journal to be clear on my own thoughts, of saying how, how did you find those tools? Was it trial and error again, or did you get some advice, or did someone just suggest you do these things? Because yeah, it, it was a bit of trial and error. I tried different. Uh, things like mindfulness came, you know, because I, I found that. But also, I went to I went to counselling, so I learned um, about writing a journal and bringing the three together. Actually, I learned about that through counselling processes around the bereavements, okay. and that has led me in great stead for, you know, leading change inside organisations. So I suppose, you know, you mentioned you're 55, you know, we're getting towards the end of our career. You know, what next from a career perspective? Is there a bigger HR job? Uh, do you want to try and do an operational job? Or do you want to, you know, do a bit like me, go plural and do more speaking or more academic work? I mean, there's lots of opportunities. I mean, the one thing about living longer, hopefully, yeah, yeah. is we have choice, don't we? And, you know, yeah. once we've been successful in one thing, we, it tends to open up other opportunities. So, Yeah, I, I mean, one of the things, I, when I think about that, I think about I've been very comfortable working inside large organisations. You know, two-thirds of the UK's population does not work in the private sector in large organisations. And I think we sometimes forget that as HR people. We think that what we do is what most people do. Um, so, But I'm personally very uh, comfortable working in large organisations and see, I think I'll see myself through to retirement doing what, doing what I'm doing. All right, thank you for spending the time with us, Quentin. I think it's been, um, I think it's been a great podcast. I think there's loads of stuff in there about change and HR. And thank you for sharing that bit about your own resilience at the end. I think that's very helpful. Thank you. Thank you, doing really good. Cheers.